from ICRT, this is Hearsay, the show that features spoken word performances from right here in Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, and in this hour, we'll be hearing performances from a Taipei Story Slam event that took place in March. During the March event, storytellers were asked to prepare a seven-minute story based on the night's theme. At this event, the theme was coming home. The performers were told their story had to be true, it had to be from personal experience, and had to be told from memory, so no scripts allowed. Before we get to the stories, there's a few things we should mention first. If you're interested in attending or performing in a Story Slam event, you can learn more about Taipei Story Slam by visiting them on their Facebook page. Just search Taipei Story Slam. And this is the inaugural edition of Hearsay. Down the line, we're hoping to turn this into a regular program broadcast on ICRT, but we're releasing it online first to get feedback from you. Yes, you. Listening right now. You can send me an email at keith at icrt.com.tw or leave a comment on ICRT's Facebook page. Let us know what worked for you, what could be improved, and what you'd like to hear more of. Also, in the future, we're hoping to feature more spoken word performances from other groups in Taiwan as well. We're talking about poetry, dramatic readings, plays, any performance done in spoken word. Mostly focusing on English language performances, but we'd consider putting in Mandarin performances as well. So if you're in a group doing this kind of thing, or if you know about one, send those recommendations our way. Well, it's enough from me. Here's our first storyteller, Wade's son. Sticking with the theme of the night, coming home, Taipei Story Slam asked all of the storytellers to finish this sentence, home is blank. Wade told us home is not an option. Here's his story. Ever since I was little, I always had this fear of going to the army. See, I, I had this condition growing up where, with my stomach, where if I need to go to the bathroom, I need to go. There's no holding back. My parents and I would, used to go travel, go on trips, and I would live souvenirs everywhere. McDonald's, KFC, airport lawn, everywhere. My parents would be really upset with me. They would tell me, what are you going to do when you go to the army? <laughs> so, it's always been my fear growing up. I don't know what's going to happen to me. So after I graduated from elementary school, I got sent to Canada. During my 12 years in Canada, I didn't get to see my parents a lot. Uh, especially after I graduated from my university. I wasn't allowed to come home because if I come home, I'll get sent to the army. So after I graduated from university, my parents and I would meet somewhere. So I remember meeting them first time in Japan. I hadn't seen them for about two years, and we were spending time in Japan for about five days. And they had to come home after five days because they adopted a lot of dogs. Sixteen. <laughs> Sixteen straight dogs back then, but now 32. <laughs> yeah, so they had to come home. I remember on the way to the airport, I told my mom, I think I should really come back with you. I haven't been spending a lot of time with you, and I think I really need that. And my mother said to me, no, you don't have to. You're out there pursuing your dream. You're out there. Your father and I don't need you to come home. We can take care of each other. So I watched them pass through the security gate, and I watched them, and I watched them. Until I couldn't see them anymore, I started to cry. I cried because 
I wasn't there when my dad had surgery. And I wanted to be there with my mom, but I couldn't because the army thing. So I don't know when I'm going to see them next. Two years later, maybe, for another five days. If I'm lucky enough, maybe 20, 20 times, 15 times, 10 times, I don't know. So my parents and I went back to this relationship on the phone, usually me and my mother. So it's like having this relationship with your operating system, except my mother does not sound like Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> I mean, she's a beautiful lady and everything, which you can tell by looking at me. <laughs> but her voice, on the other hand, you know, on her good day, I couldn't tell the difference between her voice and my dad's. So when I went back to Vancouver, I studied my life as an actor slash waiter. But mostly, mostly waiter. See? One of the reasons I wanted to be an actor is I wanted to experience different things, different characters, you know, like, like experience different genre, things I would never do in my real life. But then I totally, totally got that in Vancouver. See, I auditioned for awesome parts like Chinese restaurant waiter. <laughs> Asian cook, a guy who doesn't tip, bad driver, immigrant, and I was Asian twice on the show Arrow. You know, it's extremely rare to have the same actor playing two different parts on the same show in the same season, but, but I was just that good. Or they couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> so I got really frustrated. I, I called my mother. I said, Mother, I, I think I should come home. If I want to pursue my actor dream, I should be in Asia. I should be really playing different parts. My mother said to me, No, if you wanted to come home, you would have done so 10 years ago. Not now. You're too old. <laughs> so then a week later, I got this call from my agent. He told me I got this part in the TV show King and Maxwell. And... I went on set the next day, and Rebecca Romaine, she's sitting next to me, and she turned around with a soft voice. She said, hi, I'm Rebecca. And I was like, I know who you are. You're the X-Men, mystique blue lady. But she was like, I have to play cool. So I was like, hi, I'm Wade. <laughs> nice meeting you. And then John Tanning, the other lead guy from the other end of the trailer, walked out to me, and he said, I really like our scene together. You know, It's so funny. And I said, yeah, whatever, it's only one scene, one day, I don't really care. But then he kept on saying, oh, I think by the end of the series, we should have a little twist in our relationship. Oh, by the way, what I play, I play the guy's best friend, a.k.a. the Asian cook. <laughs> so, so I was like, uh, I thought it was a one-day thing. And he said to me, no, 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 you got a recurring part. So, recurring part, I got so excited. I went back to my trailer, yes, I had a trailer. And... <laughs> I phoned my agent, I called my parents, I said, I, this is it, this is my big break, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. And then the writer even told me if we ever get to season two, it's going to be, my part is going to be a lot bigger. So, has anyone heard of the show King and Maxwell? <laughs> you, you do? So, I, I, so you see me, right? You, do you remember? See, that's a problem. You never got to season two. There goes my big break. 
and my heart was broken, totally, completely broken. So I was like, this is it, I'm going to go back to Taiwan. So I booked my flight ticket, I came back to Taiwan last August, and I faced my biggest fear of going to the army. And that's why I'm late today, because I was in the army. And now I have a new fear. I fear that people are going to ask me about my age, and they're going to say, aren't you a little bit too old for the army? But you know what, I don't care. I'm an hour away from my parents, and I learned so much about them I didn't know before. Like, my dad doesn't like iced coffee. <laughs> and my mother, I taught her how to use Facebook two weeks ago. And now we have friends on Facebook. <laughs> That's, thank you very much. That was Wade's son. He's about halfway through his mandatory military service, which he's serving at an elementary school teaching English and drama. He says it's actually been a pretty rewarding experience. No unfortunate bathroom incidents to report. I had a chance to chat with Wade after the show. He told me that he's now trying to decide whether he'll be better off pursuing his acting career in Vancouver, where he's already pretty well established, or in Taiwan, where he'll have to start from scratch. It is true that I don't feel like I can get really good parts in Vancouver, but as for actors who just started, I mean, it is really hard to get parts for everyone, not just for myself. So when you just start as an actor, you, you might just audition for the parts that you look like because no one knows you. And I'm Asian, so I audition for Asian parts, and I think that's completely normal. So, yeah, I, I think that I'm not sure about the industry in Taiwan, and I can't say much about how it works here. But, but just based on what I heard and my impression, it's not about how good you are. Sorry, it's about who you know about how well you're connected to the film industry. I'm not sure if that's true because I'm not fully in the film industry now. I'm just trying to meet people and, and hear what they have to say. But I, I guess I'll know better when I finish the army and actually get into the industry. Once again, the theme of the night was coming home with stories of separation, reunion, roots and family, Stories of breaking out of your comfort zone, sometimes to grow and find new places that feel like home, sometimes to run back screaming. Our next storyteller is Duncan Wright. Duncan has lived in Taiwan for four years. He says home is not being expected to contribute to the conversation. Okay, well, so I'd like to start by stating that I'm not a prude. I'm not. Well, may, maybe a little, but... I think, to be fair, I'm, I'm embarrassed easily, really easily. And the thing is, I don't mind what consenting adults do behind closed doors, as long as I don't have to hear about it or clean up afterwards, that's fine. And don't, don't touch any of my stuff. But, I mean, it's, it, it's my problem, but that's how things are. And people who know me well, they understand this. And they often treat me like I'm their elderly grandmother and they, they act embarrassed if they say something slightly risque in my presence. But some years back now, I was living in Japan, in Kyoto. And during the winter vacation, I took a short trip to South Korea, to Seoul. And I was stayed in a youth hostel. There was a lot of friendly people there. And one of these people was a, um, a young Australian guy. And he was actually living in Japan as well. He was a professional surfer. 
And as I say, he was a nice guy, but there was only one thing on this guy's mind. Um, he, he seemed to, I don't know, I think because we were both Westerners and we both lived in Japan and we were in Korea, he spoke to me a lot, but he'd only speak to me about this one thing. And it was always, so it was always about his one-night stands with Japanese women. And, you know, I just, it was too much information, you know? I, I, just, I just didn't want to hear it. I mean, okay, I'm not, I'm not here to judge, but I, I don't want, I'm not here to listen either. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I used to dread going back to the hostel because I thought, yeah, I'm going to run into him and he's going to tell me stories about the Korean women he's met, and I just, I just can't deal with it. Anyway, I, I made the grave mistake of agreeing to go with him and a guy from Canada uh, to a New Year's Eve party. It was New Year's Eve. It wasn't a calendar mix-up. It was a New Year's Eve party at a nightclub in Seoul. And the moment I entered, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I, my, my introverted nature was just overwhelmed by the lights and the sound. And I knew full well that my two companions, well, they, they would be leaving with other companions by the end of the evening. And I would be making my own way back to the hostel. And I thought, bugger that. <laughs> and... and <laughs> And it was wrong of me, but the moment these two guys were distracted, I made my way to the toilets, to the restrooms. And from there, I beat a swift retreat out into the Siberian winter of Seoul. And, it, you know, in, in retrospect, it was wrong. I, it was cowardly. I should have told them, I'm, I'm going, guys, I don't feel well. Um, but, <laughs> Uh, I mean, they, they could have sent out a search party to try and find my frozen corpse. But I think, I think they had other things on their mind. I don't think they were too worried about me. Um, but anyway, I got back to the youth hostel, and I was, I was consoled in the knowledge that the Australian guy would be going back to Japan the next day, New Year's Day, while I would be staying in South Korea for a couple more days. So I, and I thought, okay, I'm not going to meet him again, so I, I don't have to be embarrassed. Um, but anyhow, I, I really enjoyed my last two days in Seoul, had a lot of great food, met great people. Um, and then I took a train down to Busan on the south coast of South Korea, and I went to the ferry terminal, and I queued up, ready to buy my ticket. And then as I was standing there, I heard a familiar voice behind me, and, it's, and it, this voice said something like, Are you right, mate? You ditched us at the club pretty quick. And I, I apologise for the terrible Australian accent, so I apologise if there are any Australians here. Um, and I, I turned around and I said, uh, well, I apologise, and I said, Why are you still here? And he said, Well, my, my flight got cancelled, and... Um, and so he ended up coming back to Japan on the same ferry as me. And then the first thing he told me is about this Japanese woman he, he hooked up with at the club. And, and my heart, it just sank. I thought, I've got 24 hours of this book. <laughs> and I just... 
Anyway, the, this young woman was actually there. She, she was actually coming back to Japan with us. And, and she seemed really happy that she'd got this new professional surfer, Gaijin boyfriend. And he seemed really happy because he'd got somewhere to sleep. He didn't have a cabin ticket. He had a, he had a sleep on the floor ticket. So uh, he'd be sleeping in her cabin. So I felt really, really sorry for her cabin mates. My, uh, my cabin mates were two young Korean men. They didn't really speak a word of English. I don't really speak any Korean. Um, we could say some simple phrases to each other in Japanese, but otherwise, no communication. And they were great company. <laughs> um, I just, <laughs> and this probably makes me a terrible person, makes me an awful misanthrope, but just the fact, I mean, they could have been just like this Australian guy, but the fact that I couldn't understand a word they were saying just made them great company. <laughs> and I got back to Japan, and I thought, this is, this is great. I don't know what anybody's saying. Because <laughs> I don't want to be by myself, but I don't want to listen to people's uh, man-whorism, as if that's a word. <laughs> anyway, I left Japan when I started to realize 90% of what people said. I think the only reason I've been in Taiwan for four years is my Chinese is so bad that I don't pick up on what a lot of people say. I go out to dinner with my colleagues. Uh, somebody will say something. Everyone will laugh. And I'll go, Shema Dongshi? And they'll say, Meo Dongshi? Or they'll say, it's really rude. You don't worry, Duncan. You don't, you don't want to know. And the, see, the thing is, I don't. And that's home for me. It's... it's it's being able to sit with people and not have to contribute to the conversation. It's like, it's like, again, like taking off the hearing aid almost. That was Duncan Wright. He's an editor at Academia Sinica in Taiwan. He says his idea of a good time is going to the animal shelter, Animals Taiwan, and walking the dogs. When I spoke with him after the show, I was curious to know what it was he was overhearing people say in Japan. He told me the main thing was just people commenting on the foreigner who could speak Japanese. I asked him if he ever overhears similar comments in Taiwan, and he said he does occasionally, but mostly outside of Taipei. Something like... <laughs> is, um, yes, you, you get reactions from just about everybody. Everybody wants to say hello to you. And I, I was fairly indulging for the first dozen or so. And then my, my more grumpy interior started to come out and I uh, started to nod and wave and then just nod. <laughs> and then just keep walking. Yeah, I always feel a little bit guilty when I get to that grumpier place because people seem so sincere in their curiosity and their friendliness, but it, it does get to be a little bit overwhelming at some point. It does. If they're little kids, I always say hello. <laughs> I think that's important. Could you, could you understand what any of them were saying? No, I, I could understand most of it, sadly. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was nothing, nothing terrible. It was just, oh, oh, Daddy, look at the, uh, look at the foreigner. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if they're happy... Um, I should be ha I should be happy as well. I, I, should, <laughs> I should be less I should be less of a misanthrope. I think that's the that's the lesson I should learn.
Once again, this is Hearsay on ICRT. Today we're listening to stories about coming home. All of these stories were performed live at the Taipei Story Slam in March. Taipei Story Slam was founded by Sean Scanlon and Mandy Rovita. The March event was hosted by Mandy as well. To become a featured storyteller at a Story Slam event, send them a one-paragraph pitch of your story to taipeiplayers at gmail.com. Our next storyteller is Zona Joe. She's one of the co-founders of the creative crowd-learning platform Becoming, which invites members of Taiwan's foreign and local communities to come together and share their creative skills through member-facilitated workshops. Here, she tells the story of some of the experiences that led her to founding this organization. Before the show, Zona said, "Home is where I want to be." Here she is, live at Taipei Story Slam. So, hello. I'm going to start with the most boring introduction of myself. Hi, I'm Zona. And often, that's when people got stuck, because they will start to ask you, "Oh, Zona." If I were in the States, they would start to ask me, "Uh huh. So, what's your real name? <laughs> uh, what do you mean by my real name? It's um, I introduce myself as Zona, and you're like, 'No, it's not your real name. Where are you from?' And that question I have heard so many times. The first time I got um, I got this question was when I went to Japan." And I, I recited the textbook answer. I'm from China, <laughs> and then and the Japanese um, clerk looked at me and said, "Oh, so uh, which part of China?" And I say, "Taiwan." So you are not Chinese. You are Taiwanese. And at that time, like it was a really long time ago, which I didn't really want to talk about years. <laughs> But that was when people still, when in our textbook, we only say, "I am Chinese," and、um, we don't have this concept of Taiwanese. The concept of Taiwanese actually came into my consciousness when I went to college. When, you know. I don't want to get political here, but that was the first time people start to talk about Taiwan is a country, the country that no one recognizes, and and a lot of my classmates fought for it. So that was when I started to think about my cultural identity, because before college I dreamed to study Chinese literature. So my I identify with my cultural heritage, and I have never thought about political issue until then. And I grew up in this family where my father, basically my grandpa's family, retreated from mainland China when my father was three years old, and my mom was Taiwanese Taiwanese, but we only talk, we only speak in Mandarin Chinese. So my Taiwanese level is this this low. I can curse and swear, and that's all. <laughs> But, so, because I really, I started to feel like there was one part of me that's missing. It was until I got into college, and that was another cultural shock for me, because I didn't end up in Chinese literature. I went to foreign languages and liter-、uh, literature department, 
and all of a sudden, I feel I was not in Taiwan anymore. You know, my classmates they speak in English during the break, and I was like, "Huh, what's going on?" <laughs> I didn't have that background. I never speak a single word of English before.、Uh, well, except for that, when I went uh, uh, to Australia, I would say, "I like a large French fries, please." <laughs> that, that's all I learned, <laughs> and so. When I entered the English language department, the first day we had this placement test that was horrifying because everybody else was great. They were we were reciting Shakespeare, the most famous soliloquy. So everybody else was like, we, I was like watching this Shakespeare play in Taiwan, and when it was my turn, uh. Hi.、Uh, to, 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 to pee? Oh, not to pee. <laughs> That is the question. And then I, 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 st- I got stopped right there. My professor was there. <laughs> Miss Zhou, to pee or not to pee? That is not the question. <laughs> That is the problem. <laughs> That was my wonderful. Entering into another culture, <laughs> I feel like ever since then I feel like I don't know where I belong, and I couldn't really communicate with my classmates because I didn't have all this cultural literacy. So I decided I had to study abroad, and I saved up enough money and went on this exchange program, and I went to San Francisco. Oh my God, <laughs> that was really another world. So, and it was so hard to fit in. Americans, do you know you don't like make friends <laughs> with Asians <laughs> unless you are a guy and you are interested in that girl? <laughs> well, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, who wants to be friends with me? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, that, that's another crossing culture because I realized, oh, so if you ask me to hang out with you, that means you actually want to make out with me. <laughs> But we are not boyfriend girlfriend. Uh huh. <laughs> you are not considering marrying me. <laughs> really hard for me to understand. <laughs> and then. <laughs> Okay, that that was a whole like initiation passage. That that after that whole process, I went, I came back to Taiwan. <laughs> That's like ah,、uh, what's going on here? I don't understand anything. I feel I don't fit anywhere anymore. I'm always in between. And that was when I decided I need to create my own home. And that was when I started becoming with my friend. If I cannot find a place for me to be, I need to create a place I want to be, and that's where I call home. That was Zona Joe. She's a freelance translator and a cram school English teacher. 
After the show, Zona told me that she hopes that the organization she co-founded, Becoming, will be a place where differences are embraced and people from all different cultural backgrounds can learn from one another. Whether it's in the U.S. or in Taiwan, there is a dominant culture, like the U.S. mainstream culture to be um, special, to be individualistic, to be cool. And in Taiwan, it's like, okay, you have to be, you know, polite, you have to be um, peaceful, you have to be in harmony with other people. These are really good qualities, but I, I think it's limiting when we put so much emphasis on one characteristic. And when you don't fit into that paradigm, we just exclude you and or force you to assimilate. I, I just feel... Why can we allow this in-between place or this gray area or this middle ground to exist? Is, is that a really hard thing to do? Do you think that that's a challenging place to, to get? Yeah, it is totally challenging because, because you know, um, even within the community, we have to negotiate, accommodate to each other's style, the communication style. Uh, and Because, you know, we, are, we come from so different places so so sometimes there 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 is a chance for misunderstanding miscommunication and that's for me that's where the real learning begins because now you have to really see someone else's point of view not just from your own standpoint you need to try to bridge the gap which is very challenging you can learn more about the organization at becoming.taiwan.tw. Our next story is from Laurel Buckles. She tells the story of visiting her home in the U.S. after living in Taiwan for several years. Before the show, she said, home is where the laurel is. I had moved to seven different states by the time that I was 13. And we were currently living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at that time. And it wasn't enough that Kurt Cobain had just died. My father informed me we were going to be moving to Colorado. The conversation kind of went something like this. F*** you, Dad. I don't want to move. Where did you learn that language? I learned it from you. That really happened. I emulated the drug commercial. My mother told me I would be going to Ponderosa High School, and I said, I'm going to high school at a steakhouse. (laughs) I didn't like Colorado very much, and I didn't fit in very well. But beside the fact of not knowing where my home was, home was always a sketchy place for me to be because my father was a very angry man. To give you an idea of how angry he is, he curses at the news, He curses at stars on the television. He yells at golf. And one year, while watching the Super Bowl, he picked up the little doll that was on top of the television, and he winged it at the TV, and he said, F*** you, Michael. At Michael Jackson, as he was singing We Are the World at halftime. (laughs) This made living in my house very awkward. So... I continued to grow up, I got through high school, I got through college, I studied politics, made me hate my government, obviously, and I wanted to travel, so I came to Taiwan. After being in Taiwan for two years, you kind of get this sense that, you know, you miss home. It doesn't matter where you would have been. You just kind of get a nostalgia for home. Oh, I miss Mexican food. Oh, I miss the mountains. Oh, I miss my friends. 
that kind of thing. And I jumped on the opportunity to take a free courier flight home, which means I had 12 hours to get on a plane and go home, and all I had to do was take auto parts. So I called my father at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I said, Dad, I'll be home in 36 hours. And he went, oh, that's, that's nice, because it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And I called my friends and told them I'd be home, and none of them really had time to plan off from work because they work real jobs in the United States. Not that we don't hear. <laughs> so going home, I decided I was going to make this a trip also where I would see my grandmother who I hadn't seen in 10 years. So I flew the flight home and I went to Buffalo, New York to see my grandmother who turns off her hearing aid at uh, family dinners so that she doesn't have to talk to everyone. And my mother came to join me And I had those moments of growth that you can only have after being away for a long time and then you come back and you realize like what shit is not yours and what shit is like, oh, that negativity belongs to my mother, not mine. Oh, and she got that from her mother. Okay. And you have these epiphanies about who you are as a person and how you separate away from your family, which is so critical to growth. So I had that mind blown and then I flew home to Colorado to see my father and my brother. Now, my brother, I grew up in the same house with, and the tension of being around my dad all the time means that we didn't have that great of a relationship. And two weeks before this trip had happened, he had started a Facebook profile where he added 22 family members and my friends from high school and neglected to add me, and I was hurt. I was like, what the hell did I do? The only thing I could ever come up with after years and years was I called him fat when we were kids. But I was an older sister. That was my job. Okay? So we go home. My friends are too busy, really. My best friend of 18 years, who I still know, was going on the second date with a guy who was, she was sure was going to be the one. And we spent 24 hours together. I was a little hurt by this. I mentioned this to my mother. I said, Jen doesn't really have time for me. I still love Jen, and no, he wasn't the one, but that's how it worked out. She convinced me that I needed to see my brother on the final night that I was there. So we go to dinner, downtown Denver. We are there at dinner for three hours. I ask my brother question after question. How are you? How's your love life? How's the car? How's your job? Where are you living now? What's going on with you? For three hours. And for three hours, I got polite pleasantries back at me. And after three hours, he had not asked me one question about, how is Taiwan? How are you? How's our grandmother you just saw? Nothing. And I flipped out (laughs) by the end of the three hours. I said, you know what? I am the only sister you're ever going to have, and you've spent the last three hours ignoring me, and I don't know what I've ever done to you, but I'm reaching out to you, and nothing is happening. And he looks at me, and he says, You're a f***ing And we have exchanges of bad words on the street in front of a nice restaurant of downtown Denver, and he goes, F*** you, I'm taking off. And my mother looks at me and says... Is this why Jen doesn't want to hang out with you? (laughs) We drove home in silence. This is a true story. We drove home in silence for 45 minutes back to Parker, Colorado. And the next day, I'm asking my dad, what can I have done better? And he's like, I don't know, Laurel. He's just pissed off about something in high school. I really don't understand. He's your brother. I don't know. 
And I told my parents I wasn't coming back for five years after this trip because it wasn't worth the money and the stress. And I went back to Taiwan and I couldn't get back to Taiwan like fast enough. And when I got back, I decided that after years of trying to get some kind of validation and love from my family that I wasn't going to do it anymore. It wasn't worth the pain. And it was at that moment that I was free. And four months later, I did get an apology letter from my brother explaining in a seven-page letter all the hurt that he had had from childhood, and none of it was from me. None of it had anything to do with me. It was all about our family and how we learned how to either express anger in our house or repress it, and it didn't really work. And that was nice to have, and it fit a lot of things, but what I came to realize was not needing validation from anyone or anything outside of yourself is the greatest freedom you can have. And for me, that felt like waking up and coming home. So home is wherever I am. Home is where the Laurel is when she is happy and content being centered. Thank you. That was Laurel Buckles. She's a comedic performer with Taipei Improv and the Taipei Players. It's been about three years since that trip home, and when I spoke with Laurel after the show, she told me that the family situation has improved quite a bit, and that she now speaks with her father and brother fairly regularly. Laurel says she hasn't always been a performer, and we also talked about what it's been like for her getting into performance in Taiwan over the last year or so. She told me that this experience has been like coming home in its own way. Because I was being creative and giving a part of myself out that I hadn't been able to do in the past that I had shut down for years. And when I finally let the creativity out, I finally started meeting people that I connected with and bonded with. And in that, it was like coming home. So I think there's a lot of performance art opportunities out up here in Taipei, and especially with music or comedy. There's just a lot of outlets, and there's a whole artist community up here. So yeah, I think Taipei has got it going on, and it's a small enough place. I mean, it's a huge city, but it's a small enough city that for a foreigner, you get recognized a lot easier for your achievements than you would, say, in New York City or Chicago or somewhere like that at home. So, yeah, I do think it's pretty easy to get involved in the arts up here. I want to take a quick moment here to encourage anybody who's listening to really consider making it out to a Story Slam event, either as an audience member or as a storyteller. Taiwan is a place where stories worth telling happen every day, and Taipei Story Slam is a great place to hear them. When I was talking to Laurel, she made a point of telling me that performing at the Story Slam was a big experience for her. This was really difficult for me. It was not on a comedy level. It was something I had to think seriously about. It brought up a lot of issues that I thought I had dealt with emotionally but it was good for me to push myself this way and it's good to I mean after the show I had people come up to me and one woman had tears in her eyes and she said thank you so much like I had tears in my eyes and I think it's art is super important for people to digest their psychological problems or even just express themselves in a healthy way art is the way through it and we need more of that To become a featured storyteller at a Story Slam event, send a one-paragraph pitch of your story to taipeiplayers at gmail.com. You can learn more about the group on their Facebook page. Our last story comes from Alan Patterson. He says home is 15 minutes away on Interstate 70 in Anywhereville, USA. Yes, home is 15 minutes away on Interstate 70 
in Anywhereville, USA. I'm driving my third-hand Audi, belching out black smoke. Ahead of me, I spot Russell Smithers. I haven't seen him for more than 10 years since we were students in elementary school. Now, Russell has long, flowing hair, blowing freely in the wind. As if by chance, he spots me and turns around and raises to his lips a half-smoked joint. He takes a deep puff. Hey, buddy, you want some of this? From that point, I execute a maneuver no less difficult than the U.S. Air Force doing a refueling routine in midair. I place my left foot on the accelerator, straddle the middle of my car, put my left hand on the driving wheel, and extend my right hand out the passenger window. Our cars nearly graze each other several times as I tentatively reach out and touch hands with Russell. Several times it takes me before I'm finally able to take the joint into my car. Russell looks at me and says, Hey, dude, catch you later. And he takes off down Interstate 70 into the sunset. The joint is still smoldering in my fingers. I press it to my lips and take a toke. Imperceptibly, my perception of the world has changed. A huge truck behind me is flashing his lights. His horn is blaring. I realize I'm sitting in the middle of my car with my left foot on the accelerator, nowhere near the brake pedal. With the same acuity and good sense that enabled me to drive my car by Russell's and take the joint from him. I work my car into the slow lane and then exit the interstate. I take the slow way home. I begin to daydream about Russell when we were kids. Russell was adopted by one of the Quaker families in my community. He came from a broken home, his father violent and abusive. By the time he arrived in our community, most of the kids had an established pecking order. We didn't know how Russell would fit in, if at all. The Quaker people who had adopted Russell formed the moral backbone of our small town in Richmond, Indiana. The Quakers were the moral backbone, but in so many ways, Russell was my mentor. He taught me words that people seldom spoke in my small community. 
By the time I was nine years old, I was able to swear like a drunken sailor. From time to time, I was so proud that I would go home and demonstrate some of the words that I had learned to my mother. After she made me stand in the corner for half an hour, I realized sometimes pride goes before a fall. Nevertheless, I was thankful to Russell. He had made me wiser and more humble. Then I thought more about Russell one time when my mother had invited us to the Cincinnati Zoo. As usual, Russell was unrestrained and unabashed. The highlight came when we visited the baboons. Russell pointed at the baboons. Look at the red knots in those baboons' asses! Everyone else is just trying to pretend that Russell is not saying anything at all, (laughs) including my mother. Russell, be quiet, calm down. People will notice. My brother and I are looking at each other. We don't know whether to laugh or to hide in shame. The urbane Cincinnatians may recognize us for who we are, local yokels. Finally, we are able to leave the Cincinnati Zoo without event. But while we're in the car, Russell, from time to time, mentions the red knots. The children break out in uncontrollable laughter. Then, one day, about five months later, Russell mysteriously disappeared from our community. The Quaker family who adopted him, I'm sure, understood what happened, but they weren't saying very much. Nevertheless, Russell had made his mark. He spoke truth to power. He was able to see things that no one else saw. I'll be forever thankful to Russell. But somehow, I snapped out of my daydream and thought to myself, People often say that there are no such things as coincidences. And as I thought about Russell, I thought there was some significance to this meeting with Russell. But what was it? Russell was free. I was still living with my parents. I had gotten a degree in Chinese language and literature but there were no jobs for Chinese experts in anywhereville, USA. Then the realization hit me. I would follow my destiny to Asia. And without realizing it, many of those same skills that I learned from Russell became useful to me my command of invective, and my driving expertise became very useful to me as I drove through Taipei's traffic jams. Thank you. That was Alan Patterson. He's a semi-retired journalist who's lived in Taiwan off and on since 1981. Currently, he's a board member of the Taipei Foreign Correspondence Club. Alan says as long as he's been driving in Taiwan, he's never gotten into an accident, although his driving has gotten him punched by a cabbie. 
All right, that's it for today's show. Like I said, this is the very first run of Hearsay, so please do tell us what you thought. You can send us an email at keith at icrt.com.tw or leave a comment on the ICRT Facebook page. If this is something you'd like to hear more of, you've got to let us know. Taipei Story Slam was founded by Sean Scanlon and Mandy Rovita. The March event was hosted by Mandy Rovita. For ICRT's Hearsay, I'm Keith Manconi. <laughs>